welcome to What. Oh, we're back again. We're back together, Chelsea. Oh my God, it's me and you back in the saddle. Virtually. Back in the saddle, ready to learn stuff together again. I missed being in episodes with you. I missed you too. You know what? My topic for this episode is based on some research I was doing for you because I have this like insane plan for your birthday. (laughs) Theoretically, if we're allowed to like see each other during your birthday. But who's to say? Uh, But I have this insane plan that I don't know it's gonna come together, but if it does, it's gonna be really cool. And, uh, And while doing research for that, I stumbled upon this. Oh, hell yeah. I'm excited about that. I very much loved uh, the tribute episode for me um, on Aww. 420 Perfect Princess. Uh, oh, <laughs> I'm you so mean glad the that you... Eleanor Laura Main 420 Blaze It Memorial episode? <laughs> that's, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that you respected my holiday that I have to take. You know that I can't work on 420. So. <laughs> she got to. <laughs> that the was American thing about you. <laughs> Those stories were insane. I loved it. I'm so glad. Just one little guy trying to get high as balls. This week, we have a good friend and a co-worker of ours joining us. Celia, how are you? How's your quarantine? I'm so good. I'm living the dream. Every day I wake up and I do the same things. (laughs) What more could somebody ask for, you know? So your life is sort of like... Animal Crossing. It, yeah, it is. And speaking of Animal Crossing, my island is fantastic. So. Oh my gosh. You have to send me that code. I need to come Deal. visit. <laughs> you know a little bit about how the show works. Essentially, what we're doing here is an edutainment celebration of curiosity. Yes. Three adults giving each other a book report of their choosing. That's tons of fun. And I'm so happy to have you. I'm excited to be here. We kick off with a little mini game where we share the title of our topics and we each get to choose what it might be. <laughs> My topic is called sailing in wine. Sailing in wine. Sailing mm-hmm. in wine. Is it about? And I'm just. I'm gonna shoot my shot. Is it sa- mm-hmm. about sailing in wine instead of water? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> those those were the words of the title. So, in so far as that is what I said, then yes. <laughs> But there's a little more to it than that. What if it's not Ellie's trick? And what if it really just is about like a race where they like fill a pool with wine? What if it's just like I decided that my topic was going to be a dream I had? (laughs) (laughs) It's more figurative than that. It's more figurative than that. Okay. Uh, Is about like sommeliers and how like the differences between wine is kind of fake. No, but I would love to do a topic on that. Okay, no. wait. Is it about that ghost ship that went missing? But one of the theories is that all of those barrels of alcohol spilled and they thought they were going to die. So they all got in a boat and then the ship was left to sail on its own. No, but you should write a novel about that. <laughs> no, it's like a real... <laughs> I hope someday that we have enough of a listenership that somebody will make a super cut on YouTube of just all the times they're like, no, but that's a really great what topic. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what topic in and of itself. And then we forget all of them. Our own database. <laughs> For the folks at home, you should know Celia is a very talented writer. I went and saw some it's of true. her her writing performed live a couple months ago. I feel like that was like the nascence of our friendship. That's uh, true. And so I would love to read your short story about uh, 
the wine boat with the alcohol and they ran away and I, I already lost what I lost a lot of what you said, but it felt really interesting. I'm actually writing it right now. So by the end of the episode, it'll be ready. She's an Hell incredible yeah. multitasker too. She can write a novel and record a podcast simultaneously. It's very it's, impressive. She's so tall. She has room in her body to do like all these different things. It's oh, true. My limbs can handle so much more. Mine is the Great Pyramids of Paris. Question mark? <laughs> question mark and exclamation point afterwards. That is how you pronounce the question mark exclamation mark together. Question mark? Is it about the Da Vinci Code and then pyramids under the Louvre that point to where Mary Magdalene's actual tomb is and she is the Holy Grail? You would love that, wouldn't you? But no. <laughs> I wish that was what it was. I would, I would, I would love that. Those are the only pyramids in Paris that I know of. That's interesting. Is it that like in every hotel, there's like a small pyramid in the center that gives power to Paris? Whoa. I don't even know how that works, but again, another novel, please. Uh, No, that's not what it is. It's unfortunate. No. uh... Is it about like the original design for the Eiffel Tower is just much more squat? <laughs> no, but as a fun little fact bang, fact bang, bang it. Did you guys know that the, when the Eiffel Tower was built, it was considered so gauche by the Parisians, like they hated it to the point where, like, wherever it was, if you could see it in town, they would turn their backs on the Eiffel Tower and like walk around the block. They would take like a like, longer route to wherever they were going so that their back would always be to the Eiffel Tower because they hated it so much. Like, this is so fucking ugly. I hope it doesn't become a world renowned landmark. I don't want it to become like, like the synonymous icon of my city. <laughs> Celia, what's your topic? Okay, I've got two titles. Oh, overachieving again. So tall. Uh, okay, the first one is A Tale of Two Dinos. And then alternatively, Return to Bone Town. <laughs> Ret- I think return to bed. I mean, I think I think we all know where this is going, which is that it needs to be the tale of two dinos: colon return to bone town, <laughs> a novel by Celia Ties. <laughs> well, is this a follow-up to the Dino Wars? Okay, so it's not a follow-up. The beginning ties ah, in. It's adjacent. But I, I listened religiously to Chelsea's telling to Aww. make sure that I wasn't overstepping. But trust me, you'll want to buckle up for this wild ride. Well, you have a tattoo of Sue, do you not? I do, on my shoulder. I visited Sue in the before times. <laughs> <laughs> for the first time and was very impressed by that whole amazing exhibition they have there in Chicago. And then I saw your tattoo on one of our many outfit of the day days at work. And I was like, wait, I know that bone face anywhere. That's well, Sue. <laughs> well, my tattoo's in that exhibit now too. <gasps> oh my God. I didn't yeah. even know. Sue actually is a Twitter account. And two, three years ago when I got it, I tweeted and was like, I hope you like my tattoo. Heart, love you. And then like four months later, this woman, uh, Meredith Whitfield, reached out to me and was like, hey, we're redoing Sue's exhibit. Um, and we would, and we're thinking about like putting in a part where people who have like gotten tribute tattoos to Sue in the museum, like, would you be interested? And I was like, yes, <gasps> sign me up. Sounds great. And then last year I finally got to go and wow. 
spiritual. If you don't know about <laughs> Sue, if you're listening at home, uh, Sue is the most complete Tyrannosaurus uh, in the world, is she? Yeah, I think yeah. there's somebody who's like tried to step to that claim, um, <laughs> but there's something like in it. Like she's the most complete, but there's a bigger T-Rex now. Uh, yeah, right. but there's. I just went to look up uh, Sue's Twitter account because I wanted to let everybody who's listening know so they can go follow her on Twitter and also maybe say what, Sencha? <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> so it's at Sue the T-Rex, but I thought this was really cute. Her pinned tweet right now from like two days ago uh, it says, Sue the, at Sue the T-Rex says, I miss standing very, very still until everyone leaves the museum. Aww. Isn't that cute? Well, I'm so excited, Celia, for uh, the continuation, the, the follow-up to the Bone Wars, the return to Bone Town. I can't wait. Return <laughs> to Bone Town is so strong. <laughs> Sailing in Wine. Um, this whole topic was inspired by an amazing episode of Radio Lab and also a book by Guy Ducha called Through the Language Glass, Why the World Looks Different in Other Languages. Oh. I am today talking about the history of the color blue. That night, no, I would have never, if you had given me hours <laughs> yeah. to see through Sailing Through Wine, I would not have gotten there. Well, I'm going to kick off exactly why I'm calling it Sailing in Wine. So, okay. What would you say is the color of honey and faces pale with fear? Uh, gold? Maybe not faces pale with fear, mm -hmm. but honey, I would say, is like a, a dark yellow. A warm yellow. Well, if you're Homer, one of the most influential poets in human history, not Homer Simpson. I am. That color yeah. is green. <laughs> what? Honey mm -hmm. is green and faces pale with fear are green. And the sea is described in Homer's Odyssey as wine dark. Sheep are described as violet, which all sounds pretty off, right? Yeah. And this is not just like a translation issue. This is the Greek words for these colors. How could the famous blue of the Aegean Sea, where all of the Homeric events took place, ever be anything other than brilliant blue? Right. So let's take a trip down the history of colors. It's pretty wild. So William Gladstone was a British prime minister back in the 1800s, and he was a huge homophile basically classical scholar completely obsessed with all of homer's works he published a seminal 1700 page study of the epic poetry written by homer gladstone in this 30 page book describes homer's strange choice of colors like i just said sheep wool and ox skin were purple honey was green horses and lions were described as red but there was no mention of the word blue in any of homer's poetry ever oh and it turns out that across all cultures, words for colors appear in stages. The University of London conducted this huge study about colors and when we started to see colors show up in ancient works and literatures and that kind of thing. Blue is always last, always. Gladstone's explanation of why there was no blue mentioned in uh, ancient Greek poetry and ancient Greek epics uh, was because that the ancient Greeks mainly saw in terms of light and dark contrasts rather than in terms of hue. So they didn't really see these distinct colors that we would look around and be able to go red, yellow, green, blue. It was much more about the scale of light to dark. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mine meaning was substantially this. This is a quote. 
that he, Homer, operated in the main upon a quantitative scale with white and black or light and dark for its opposite extremes, instead of the qualitative scale opened up by the diversities of colour. Guy Ducher, who wrote this book through the language glass, actually kind of conducted an experiment on his daughter Alma while she was growing up. And as you know, we teach toddlers colours like, what colour is that? Yellow, what colour is this? He never gave her a word for blue. And then one day he took her outside and pointed up to the sky and asked her what color the sky was. And she couldn't tell him. To her, she said that there was nothing there. There was no color. There was no color that was distinct from the green that she knew the trees were and the grass and the colors of the flowers. But looking up at the sky, she just said, there's nothing there. Huh. That almost feels like mentally torturous to me. Gaslighting a baby. (laughs) Yeah, like he took blue away from her. How did this happen? How did language evolve in this way? And and what does that have to do with the way that we see color? One suggestion was like, it's an evolutionary thing of maybe it's something to do with the structure of the eye and the rods and the cones and the ability to differentiate between colors. But this theory was posed before we really got like scientifically into the idea of evolution. And so now we know that the time span of it was way too short for the eye to like have evolved to be able to see different colors. The second theory was that maybe Everyone in these ancient cultures was colorblind. Uh, A Swedish anatomist of the eye discovered that many people suffered from a hitherto unknown deficiency, colorblindness, presto. So that then linked into this idea, well, maybe all ancient people were all colorblind and now the eye absorbs more colors, the sensitivity to them increased, and then that newly acquired trait was passed on to subsequent generations. But now we know that it's not possible to transfer that genetically. So then that theory was abandoned. Scientists now believe it is not just a simple case of nomenclature. When we get used to seeing two hues as different colors, language trains us to see them as different entities. And the brain then exaggerates these differences. So blue, which we perceive as lighter and totally distinct from black, is in reality probably a bit darker and closer to black. In a sense, the obvious distinction between black and blue is a figment of our imagination. That makes sense. I mean, I believe that. Modern neurobiological research is proving ample evidence for this idea. Ancient humans had to distinguish between night and day, obviously, right? Yeah. And then red is important for recognizing blood and danger. And then green and yellow would have entered the vocabulary as the need to distinguish ripe fruit from unripe fruit, grasses that are green and grasses that are wilting. But there was no need for naming the color blue. Blue fruits aren't very common and the color of the sky is not really vital for survival. So... Scientists generally agree that humans began to see blue as a color when they started making blue pigments. About 6,000 years ago, humans began to develop blue colorants. So they have this lapis, which is a semi-precious stone found in Afghanistan, became highly prized among the Egyptians. They adored this new color and they used chemistry to combine the rare lapis with other ingredients like calcium and limestone and generate other saturated blue pigments. And that was the time in the Egyptian culture that a word for blue emerged. So we have this phenomenon where language is influencing our brain function and vice versa. Pretty mad. I love it. That's pretty cool. That makes sense to me because I think about that women can see more colors than men. Have you guys heard about that? It was me talking about it in my episode with Miles. That's what it was. Okay. There are some women that have yellow cones and so they can see different shades of yellow than anyone else can. After I listened to that episode with you, I immediately, of course, like looked up some test for it so that I could like... <laughs> Am I a special yellow yeah, woman? Special. And then also I made Connor do it too as like a control test. Yeah. Because <laughs> so, uh, so I was like, you can't see them. But what was interesting was in the test that I found about that, they said that that is why more women... Do you guys remember the dress? Like 26? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
it was a blue and black dress, but some people saw it as white and gold. And I remember like the first time I saw the picture, it was weird. Cause like I saw it as white and gold as like a flash. And then it like faded to blue. And me black. too. Me too. Yeah, no. Never able to see it as white and gold again. But they said that more women saw it as white and gold than men. And like that that's part of it. It was our, it's our brain, right? Not our eyes. Because like at first our eyes see this picture and we're scrambling to make sense of the patterns. So we latched onto like this weird tonal color that at first we were like is that a dark yellow like is that a yellow that i know and then it's like no it's not and then once we thought it was black then that put the blue into perspective mm-hmm. yeah so all of it is just fugazi like yeah, exactly i've always found it quite interesting the meanings that we attach to colors uh-huh so here's a little bit of history of how blue has become to mean what it now means they think that the history of blue as a color for quote-unquote everyday men uh, began when the catholic church made an important move in the year 431 a.d that was when the church started to color code the saints and mary was given a blue robe uh-huh that's coincidentally where we get the jesus in a white robe with the purple sash thing over time, the shade of blue that Mary wore became what is now known as navy blue um, because Mary stood for innocence and trustworthiness. The color blue was seen in a positive light. The same navy blue was adopted by militaries and police to convey a similar essence of trust. As navy blue became more popular among authorities, people began to associate it with the idea of authority. So then different shades of blue needed to be developed in order to convey the color's original, peaceful, subdued meaning like Robin's egg blue and pale powder blue. The history of blue as the color for boys is an even newer notion that primarily arose after the post-World World War II baby boom. It came about as a marketing scheme as manufacturers could sell more clothes if some were distinctly for boys and others were distinctly for girls. Yeah, no shit. So it was all advertising going, this is a blue boy color, blues and boys. <laughs> I think it's quite interesting with um, how different different nations and stuff came up with the color for blue and how it's used. In Japan, if you look it up now, the traffic lights are way more blue than they are green. I've noticed that in pictures. The name of that color used to be green and blue. And then over time, they just changed it to mean green. So rather than change the color, they just changed the word. Oh, interesting. Weird. So yeah. Pretty disturbing is the realization that the way we see the world is somewhat of an illusion. Basically, to bring us full circle back to the ancient Greeks, we exist in Plato's allegory of the cave when it comes to colors. Everything is illusionary. That's definitely like high up there on my list of high thoughts. Celia, if you're not familiar, like <laughs> we do have like a running list of like high thoughts that like mm-hmm. you don't have to be high to have them, but they are high thoughts. Like Ellie's iconic, which arm is your favorite? Yes. Yeah, which is your favorite arm? Oh, well, mine's my right. Are you sure? I am. <laughs> wow, the I love it. One of my favorites is that, like, I, you know, I feel confident that Ellie and I do so many things together. Like, we, you know, like, know all these same people. But, like, I feel like the Celia that I know would be unrecognizable to Ellie's. <laughs> oh, totally. I get, like, real tripped out on this shit. Because, yeah, I think that, like, you filter the in- your entire reality and existence through the collage of all the experiences you've had before them. And I think like the best evidence for this is human attraction. So like, uh-huh. you know, there are, I think that Connor is the most beautiful person I've ever seen. He doesn't think that about himself, but I'm like, you don't see yourself the way that I see you. Like if I could like perfectly put out what I see when I look at Connor and what he sees, they're not the same person. I, I code so deep into this. But like- <laughs> oh, my my favorite kind of version of that is, is the green that I see the same green that you see? 
No, I don't think they are. That, that's a nightmare thought for me. Is my color palette the same as yours? No, I don't think they are. No, they have to be different, right? Because like with people who have like color blindness, they don't all have the mm-hmm. same color blindness. Yeah. But what if it was just like completely switched that I see yellow that you see blue? When we both look up at the sky, we're like, that's a blue sky. But we're seeing two different things. Yeah. Oh, totally. Very possible. That's my topic. Beautiful. Thank you. I love it. I also love how it is kind of connected to my topic in a way you'll see. I like things that relate to like art and color and also high thoughts. So I'm going to give you just a solid 12 right out the bat. (gasps) Wow. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) It had like a fun narrative thorough line. It had some like new exciting ideas and it fostered this fun conversation at the end. Yeah. Which I think is always really important. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am going to take off two points because, uh, Sounds like hashtag Radio Lab did it first, and uh... well, <laughs> it's true that no no one on earth has had this idea of creating a podcast about interesting things. It's so true. You're the first yeah, ones. we're the first ones. We're the pioneers of this. Oh yeah. man! Well, that's fair. That is fair. Radio Lab did do it first with a much bigger budget and like I don't know, probably a workforce of about thirty people. I think about that all the time. My favorite podcast that's like, here's just some interesting stuff is Reply All. Their podcast team oh is like gosh. 12 feet. And I'm yeah. like, how incredible would it be just to have like researchers? I was listening to this poetry podcast, which is literally a lovely Irish poet, tells you a poem and then tells you about the poem. And it's like eight minutes long. And then the credits were like eight people. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> how? How? But it's called Poetry Unbound and it's lovely. Just a little recommendation for you there. Wait, well, to jump off that for a recommendation, for blue, the color blue, and poetry, there is a poetry prose book called Bluettes by Maggie Nelson. And in it, she talks about the experience of blue and like how it can mean so many different things to different people. Oh my gosh. Uh, One point for you, Celia, for that recommendation. (laughs) What do you score for me? So right off, I'll, I'll give you a solid eight. Thank you. Um, I love the color blue. I'm a big blue gal. Mm-hmm. Two more points. Just for the the ride, like the big picture. Oh. I felt like I was on a boat on a smooth river of wine wow. through time. Yeah. Beautiful. So, and then but I'm going to take away one point okay. um, for that existential moment of dread I felt when I realized that that girl didn't said that there was nothing there in the sky. Yeah, okay, that really fair. freaked me out. That was a little rough for me. So, yeah. well, thanks you guys. Oh my gosh. Okay, so hop on into my time jeep. Yes, please. We're going. <laughs> we're, go- we're going on a safari through time. So, hang on. I'm we'll- still. I'm still imagining. Okay. Okay. Yes, I'm sorry. So we're, it's leather seats, um, kind of like Jurassic Park, but yes. we can't afford quite that level. So right. it's like brown and then like some spray painted black stripes on it like a bad tiger cool we've just arrived back in 1877 with charles marsh back with charles hey what's up the marsh it's the marsh the the marsh Marsh. he's the only one we're touching on this time yes suck it eddie so charles marsh there he was he discovers a partial skeleton and he says uh i decree this to be the apatosaurus Okay. And so he, he says, here it is. He announces it. The scientific community is so thrilled, but he's missing the skull, which at that point isn't a big deal. Right. But come 1883, you know, competition still heating up. He's like, dang, I have to put out a reconstruction of this. 
and I don't have a skull, so my dinosaur looks kind of lame without one. <laughs> so he just takes another dinosaur's skull and puts it on top and is like, it's the Apatosaurus. That's not how that works. <laughs> well, it was. Okay. <laughs> so he says, 100%, he's like, doesn't matter. I'm just making up dinosaurs left and right. So two years later, his fossil hunters are like, ring, ring. What a job. Right. He, they say, we found a second skeleton. And he's like, amazing. And it's the same kind of skeleton. He's like, I don't care. Please don't tell me that. <laughs> this is 100% a different dinosaur. This one is the Brontosaurus. Okay. I don't care about the actual dinosaurs, guys. I just want people to like me. <laughs> How dare you think that my search for dinosaurs is about what dinosaurs were like? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> No, he's like, listen, you guys, there's two now. It's great. We have even more dinosaurs to love and learn about and cherish forever. Okay. Well, here's the thing. They were not different. The second one, this Brontosaurus, was just more complete. Oh, okay. It doesn't matter, though. He says, this is a Brontosaurus. It goes up. It's amazing. <laughs> it People goes are so up. excited. And they say, amazing. And I mean, who doesn't love a good Brontosaurus? I mean, yeah, from childhood. That's the moment, right? In Jurassic Park with the big face comes in the tree and the kids are scared, <laughs> but it's sweet. I mean, seared in so many people's collective memories. But you know what? It doesn't matter. So yeah. this mistake is noticed in 1903. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> and one of the museums that had a brontosaurus up was the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. Mm. And keep in mind, 1903, people know that this is like the wrong dinosaur, that it's okay. made up, like it's fake. It's just a hodgepodge of skeletons and it's 100% an apatosaurus. Okay. They put up the wrong head on their apatosaurus in 1932. <laughs> What, just through, like, being forgetful of just, like, I've got to get round to that? I'm going to have to get a big ladder. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nobody that remembers that's going to come and say, hey, I was there. That is not his head. Right. Who cares? People just want to go see Bones. It's true. People want to go back to Bone Town. Well, we're back. The Brontosaurus then, in the 70s, when the head is officially taken down and replaced with the correct one, goes extinct in the 1970s. So okay. it's bye-bye thunder lizard Aww. and hello deceptive lizard, which is what the Apatosaurus's <laughs> name is. But hold up, record scratch. Uh-oh. Bronto's back, baby. <gasps> what? In 2015, there's a National Geographic article comes out. Brontosaurus stomps back to claim its status as a real dinosaur. What? So some researchers were like, well, hang on just a second. Let's look at this dinosaur. Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus had very similar skulls. Mm -hmm. But what you can do is basically you look at a bunch of bones and you say, what are the similarities and what are the differences between these? What they do is they do specimen-based analysis. So given enough specimens, scientists can examine and compare bones to show how animals are related. So what researchers did was they looked at 81 diplodocids, which are the family of um, dinosaur that Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus are in. Okay. Um, noting the presence and absence of 477 unique skeletal features. Um, because closely related species share a lot of these features in common, mm -hmm. while species from different um, genera, which are a step below family 
in the taxonomic category ranking. So right before you divide them into their subcategories, that's the genera. Okay. And they realized that Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus had like much less in common than originally believed. Oh. So not only did they realize that like they're widespread and different enough that they could separate them out, they decided that like Brontosaurus was different enough from Apatosaurus that they're in their entirely new genus. Oh, damn. Okay. So he was completely accidentally right? Yes. <laughs> What's the one that Maximo is? He lives with Sue. Oh, he's a titanosaur. Uh, Is that his little, like, boyfriend? Yeah, and you can text him and he goes, Hello, I am Maximo. It's adorable. (laughs) But yeah, so through that, basically, they created two more genera, Brontosaurus and then Galeomopus. So it's just really cool because basically, when you can study in that way... Applying this method to other dinosaur families will help scientists eventually understand evolution through, like, what's etched in fossil records. That is incredible. So basically, if these two, like, (laughs) boners who are just fighting... who was uh-huh. fighting over being more of a man had basically got in the way we would probably be a bit further on with the whole dinosaur science than we are because they were just slapping heads on shit and fighting each other oh 100 percent. like <laughs> i mean that's why i was like i feel like i have to bring this back because i mean a unfortunately they destroyed like pits right. full of dinosaurs yeah. being jerks but i just think it's even more amazing because like brontosaurus was knocked down they were like it's not real this lazy guy just threw up and a made-up dinosaur together but now we're pretty sure it's real yeah the craziest thing i remember when i was first researching the bone wars was how much it seemed like for people who devoted their lives to discovering these dinosaurs how little it seemed to be about discovering dinosaurs celia amazing yes thank you i'm gonna give you seven points off the bat for bringing back a topic and never before done on what I loved it. Four points for being in the Museum of Chicago. uh, Thank you. With your tattoo with Sue. (laughs) And those are my points for you. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Well, this short queen (laughs) is going to give you (laughs) six points for taking a previous topic of mine and like really expanding upon it and like building out the universe, you know, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. But minus five points for copying. Whoa. (laughs) Great topic. (laughs) Great topic. Chelsea, do you want to bring us home? Oh, I'll bring us all the way home. But first, before we go home, we need to make a little pit stop. Pit stop. In Paris. Oh. I know I've never talked about this with either of you. And I've actually, I don't bring it up because I'm like so modest. But like, Uh live in paris wait uh-huh. what on. no that's insane unprecedented stuff <laughs> <laughs> did and one of the things that was really surprising to me when i moved there and i was like spending a lot of time you know walking around i was very small i had no money and i was brought face to face with the fact that i had no coat because what i considered <laughs> a coat for texas weather was a jacket in january in paris and i was freezing all the time you know how people on the internet like to make fun of Cheesecake Factory. I swear this is going to connect. Mm-hmm. Yes. Going to a Cheesecake Factory and you have these like beautiful like Corinthian columns next to like the Eye of Sauron. Like, yep. well, the thing is, is that like that's actually a little bit closer to Parisian architecture than I think people want to admit. I mean, Paris is an international city and France was 
you know, a big old colonizer for many centuries. So when you walk around Paris, you will see a hodgepodge of architecture. I think, you know, especially like in America, I feel like we've got the market cornered on. We've blended cultures. What a melting pot. But like, <laughs> if you go to like and I'm sure it's also true in, in London, like any sort of major international city is going to have this like hodgepodge, right? Yeah. But one of the ones that you'll see the most is Egyptian influence. Like oh. there is Egyptian mm. shit everywhere in Paris. Obviously, like you mentioned, Ellie, the pyramids that are over the Louvre, they're in a direct homage to Egypt. But even sometimes if you'll just be walking down a room, that's a street. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're walking down a street and you'll just see a carved edifice that looks like an Egyptian relief print. In England too, in I think London more specifically, there's just random Egyptian obelisks around. Oh yeah, oh, we'll get into that. There's okay. ob- I love an obelisk. So I started wondering, I was like, as far as I know, Egypt was not specifically a French colony at any given time. It's not like Egypt, unlike say like Vietnam was never under like direct French control for any like given amount of time. Okay. So why is this everywhere? And what I found really took me on a journey. Ooh. Ooh. A journey of Egyptomania, which is an actual term. It also brought me back to my degree because when I was living in Paris, it was because I was an art history major. <laughs> and what better place to study art history? Ellie, you mentioned all the obelisks. Yeah. There was a period of time in which Europe just got so dripping wet for Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) Just obsessed with it for a lot of reasons that we're going to go into soon. They were so obsessed and also, as we know, so convinced that they just sort of had the right to anything that they wanted that now Mm -hmm. in present time, you guys should know that there are 50 museums all over the world outside of Egypt that have over a thousand Egyptian artifacts. And these are like museums of Egypt. These are just, you know, museum of art or whatever. I never felt great walking around (laughs) the British Museum, you know? Yeah. We took a bunch of stuff and now they're like, hey, do you think maybe uh, we could have that back? And we're like, oh, sorry. It's just like too delicate to post. So (laughs) we are going to keep, uh, we're going to keep all of that here um, and you can come (laughs) see it, but it's going to be, it's going to cost you some money. It just looks so nice and it's custom cement building we built for it. Yeah. It would be a shame. The Parthenon, like we are going to hold on to that though. We have no claim to it, but yeah. Oh, totally. They're everywhere. And there are whole wings of museums in England and France and in the United States that have full Egyptian temples mm-hmm. mentioned in, in England. Uh, also in New York City, there is... Is that the one in the Met? Yeah, in the Met, there's the Temple of Dendur. One that I remember seeing in person long, long, long time ago is in Madrid, the Temple of Dabad has been recreated and it's in the middle of like a lake in just a park. Those temples, the Dabad and Dendur, and then also the Temple of Tafe, which is in the Netherlands, and the mm-hmm. Temple of Alessia, which is in Turin, again in Italy. Those are a little bit different. It goes back and forth. So when I first saw the Temple of Dabad in Madrid, it was on a tour because I was mm-hmm. it was part of a school trip. And I remember that the tour guide told us that in the mid-century, 20th century, Egypt was so hard up for money that they started selling their temples and then bought them. And I remember always thinking that was so sad that like they would get to that point that they would have to sell off like these 
you know, three, 4,000 year old temples. Yeah. However, when I was doing research for this what topic, I actually found a totally different story, which is that Egypt was building this dam in the 50s and 60s. And when they did that, they found that the runoff from the water in the dam was going to endanger a lot of these old temples. And they were worried about how to create the proper infrastructure to protect them from like irrigation, oh. coming oil, like making them break apart. And these four countries, Spain, Italy, the US and the Netherlands stepped up and helped them with like this, this uh, project. Yeah. And so I have to say thank you for helping them with the dam, huh. they donated these four. So I don't know which one is true. That you have a huge boner for all of our hieroglyphics and thanks for helping us out, I guess. So here's the whole temple. The thing is, like, I'm more inclined to believe a written source that I read, which is the one that said that they were donated, than my tour guide. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same yeah. time, it, there is something really strange about this story of, like, they were building a dam and they were worried they were going to be they were going to be destroyed or damaged. So then they donated the thing that they were yeah. worried was going to be damaged because somebody helped them prevent it from being damaged. Like, there's a weird mental gymnastics there. So we've established there are Egyptian artifacts all over the West. But let's go back to the why of like, why was the West so obsessed with Egypt? And it goes back to our favorite short king from history, Napoleon. (laughs) (laughs) Napoleon was really obsessed with Egypt to the point where he started the French campaign in Egypt. And the reason that he officially gave for starting this campaign that took three years and was very unsuccessful and cost <laughs> a lot of a lot of French lives. The reason given on the surface was strategic. And it was that at this point, the UK, England, which as you know, England and France locked in like a centuries long power battle, dick measuring contest. Yep. England was controlling India and the West Indies at this point. So they had they had all that spice. Mm. They had all the other spice? like imports and spice and money, tea money getting that tea and uh <laughs> napoleon was furious yeah. and so he had this idea this idea that kind of would later become the suez canal but he couldn't have known that at the time he had this idea that if he could go down through turkey and control egypt that he, they would have a like through the mainland of uh of europe that they could start to control and like move in on india and all of like the near east oh hmm. Yeah, so that was what he said. However, there's a lot more going on here. And this goes back to art history as like a guiding principle in our history and our culture, which I don't know that we always think about it this way. But this was what really interested me in art history back when I was in school. If you think about it, for most of human history, most of the human population was illiterate, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mass literacy, middle and lower class, to you know, put it like kind of bluntly, literacy didn't really come about until the Industrial Revolution and beyond. And so, for all the history before that, most people on the planet couldn't read, which okay. means that art, iconography, and architecture played a much larger role in shaping society and like what people believed about politics and politicians, and especially rulers. And rulers really mm-hmm. used it to their advantage. Like one of the earliest examples was in ancient Greece. If you look at all of like the famous like ancient Greek and Roman sculptures, uh, rulers or emperors, they always have curly hair, right? Curly hair looks like a laurel plant. 
And oh. laurel, the laurel tree grew on Mount Olympus. So if you had a, a crown of laurels, it meant that you were from Mount Olympus, aka mm -hmm. you were godlike. So they would mm -hmm. they would commission themselves to be drawn or sculpted with curly hair because it looked like a laurel plant. And then people would be like, oh my God, Caesar? <laughs> In Egypt, the pharaoh's power was derived from the idea that they had a direct connection to the deities. So the idea was that the deity allowed them to rule, and as long as people were good and did what the ruler said, the deity would then take care of Egypt. So mm -hmm. if anything mm -hmm. went wrong, like if there was a natural disaster or something, it was because the people were not listening to the pharaoh who was chosen by the deity. So that was how their power derived to the point where, I don't know if you ever noticed this, this is getting real deep and geeky, but if you go to any of the <laughs> museums we've been talking about and you see Egyptian sculptures, a lot of times their noses are broken off. Yeah. So there was a time where they used to think that that was just because they had been transported so much and they were like, well, right. the nose is like a small part that like- A delicate part of the statue. Yeah, so it probably that's why it gets broken more often, but it turns out that is not true. Actually, a lot of them, they were broken before they were ever taken out of Egypt. And it's because, what do you do with your nose? Breathe. You breathe, right? Your mm -hmm. nose is for breathing. So if a statue of a pharaoh or of a leader was a representation of their connection to a deity, then if you broke off their nose, they couldn't breathe anymore and you severed that connection. So <sighs> the way to vilify and destroy the connection between a pharaoh and a deity was by breaking their nose but coming back to napoleon even though napoleon was doing this in like the late 18th early 19th centuries which still like most people were illiterate but it was you know people were like the age of enlightenment had already happened he still understood the importance of iconography and he greatly respected the way that the ancient romans and the ancient egyptians utilized iconography to control their people because that mm -hmm. was a thing that napoleon was super into so loved it the expedition to Egypt was not super successful. Like I said, he was not successful in turning Egypt into a French colony. However, he did, while he was there, he started the Institute of Egypt, the Institute l'Egypte, and he was responsible for bringing all this stuff back into Europe. He found the Rosetta Stone, brought oh. that back to Europe. It was very much like, a, oh, that's cool, mine kind of energy. Now the Rosetta Stone, fun fact, is actually in the British Museum. Yes, it and, is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Can't move it. Too big. Egypt's chief of antiquities has been asking for 10 years yeah. for uh, the UK to formally return the Rosetta Stone to Egypt. Oh, and they, no. <laughs> they, no. to, like, uh, they also want back the bust of Nefertiti, which is in Berlin's Egyptian museum. And Berlin's yeah. like, oh, no. Also, there's a 3,200-year-old golden mask from a noblewoman's tomb that's in the St. Louis Art Museum. Did they ask back and St. Louis was like, mm, no. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> that has been an ongoing struggle. But back to Egyptomania, which is again, a real term. You can look it up. Hell yeah. This was, all the stuff starts coming in from Napoleon's campaigns. And it's unlike anything that anybody has ever seen before in Europe, they're losing their shit. It's traveling around the continent, you know, and like these traveling exhibitions and wealthy people are seeing them and they're losing their absolute minds because it's so cool. The really fun thing, and I'm using fun in air quotes, that happens is, <laughs> 
they love the stuff that's coming in. I think it's so cool. It starts naturally this conversation about race because people mm. in Europe don't want to believe that these Egyptians that made this these incredible wonders unlike they've ever seen before these you know they're hearing tales coming back from the field of these pyramids that reached all the way to the stars that mm -hmm. like no one can imagine having ever built these obelisks that seem to like touch the sun the Rosetta Stone that like can translate languages they don't want to believe but they also know that Egypt is in Africa and they don't uh -huh. want to believe that Africans can do this Right. Or, or could, or even worse, did this thousands of years ago, right? Because uh -huh. even though they might have been post slavery, they were not post racism by any means. And so there became, this became like a big conversation in like salons and circles. There were big debates about them, like public debates people would go to about whether or not Egyptians were white or black. They would even take mummies wow. at their skull huh. and try to say, oh, look at the skull, the shape of the skull, because that was. That was a big thing that has since been completely proven to be false. But they used to say in the 19th century and the 18th century that if you looked at the skulls of black people, that they were shaped differently, which meant that their brain was different, which is why it was okay to enslave them. They were trying to figure out where to put Egyptians in this hierarchical order because they couldn't conceive of this idea that Africans... That an ancient African nation could be like so advanced and smart for compared to the rest of the world. Right. And so that is also why a lot of times, even into like the early 20th century, you'll see depictions similar to Jesus. You'll see depictions <laughs> of like Cleopatra and other famous figures from Egyptian history as very, very white. Looking white as hail. Mm -hmm. yes. And then it wasn't until like the middle of the 20th century in the midst of the civil rights movement and then kind of Afrocentrism becoming kind of a way of thinking that they started to say, oh, no, 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 ancient Egyptians were black. It's not clear that we'll ever exactly know. It's also probably most likely that since this was like three, 4,000 years ago, that Egyptians being black is not the same thing as the black, like Africans as we understand them now, because ancient Egypt colonized places as well. So yeah. they had other kind of groups coming in and going out. So sometimes people will say, well, that's why Cleopatra was light is because she was uh, related to Alexander the Great. And it's like, yeah, but there were like hundreds of years between the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't think that's a good enough reason to say that Cleopatra was uh, like whiter than white. So, <laughs> so that brings us to the present, which we already kind of touched on, which is that now as, you know, um, our understandings of colonization and cultural appropriation have developed, especially in the art world. Egypt, a lot of times is being like, hey, we want some of this stuff back. <laughs> like, We'd uh, love that back. Mm -hmm. And it's not even like they're asking for every single thing back, but like we said, like really big things, like statues of Nefertiti, Tutankhamun, yeah. like the Rosetta Stone, these huge major milestones in Egyptian history. And all they're, they're not even saying like, you need to pay us they're not suing them they're not like they're not doing yeah. anything like can we it's gonna be in a big box in a room in a museum can that museum be in egypt instead of in st louis and it's like no no <laughs> oh yeah but the craziest thing i found and i thought this was this was where it kind of connects to ellie and ellie's specific interests and it's also a great spot to end on is that um 
the widespread proliferation of stolen Egyptian artifacts is so prevalent that recently, I believe it was in 2019, the Antiquities Department of Egypt just happened to stumble upon a stolen Egyptian artifact at an auction house in London. So it was just huh. through private auction from somebody's private collection into the world. And Whoa. they happened to be there, I think, for something else. And they were like, hey, wait a minute. Where did that come from? And it was something that had been on one of their lists of something to recover. So they were able to work with like international departments and get it back. They didn't have to like buy it in the auction. This department's entire job is just trying to track down all of these artifacts that were stolen over the past 400 years or so and bring them back. All because Napoleon was like, hey, you know, it'd be super cool as if everybody <laughs> thought I was a pharaoh. <laughs> Chelsea, holy crap. We traveled we we just around. We traveled spaces and time, and it was amazing. Absolutely, lo- and you know I'm a slut for ancient Egypt, like the rest of the Western world. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you eight points for ancient Egypt, <laughs> two points for living in Paris because I never knew that about you. <laughs> I've never. <brought> I'm going to take off a point because you need to buy a damn coat. Or do I? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go in the foreseeable future? That's true. I'm going to give you one more point because during your topic, I was interested and I just looked up that in 2010, the Metropolitan Museum returned a bunch of stuff that they had literally been stolen from Tutankhamun's tomb. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And they were like, you know what? You you can have these little things back. We'll ship these back to you. We're going to keep that temple. We're going to keep Wait, that temple. Wait, did you? <laughs> Wait, but, uh... <laughs> King Tut's stuff is going on display for the last time ever before it all goes back to Egypt this year. I almost think it's funnier that they will, they'll give some stuff back because it does have like this sort of first grader energy of just being like, you stole my crayons. And it's like, okay, yeah. well, here, you can have the brown one. And it's like, yes. well, I don't want the brown one. More yep. the nice ones. <laughs> That's so I good. I can have the brown and the yellow one and also like the green one, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I too am a slut for ancient Egypt. Yeah. Um, those books, like those big picture books and stuff seared in my memory. So mm-hmm. I'll give you a seven points for ancient Egypt. Yep. I'll give you five points for taking us around the world yeah. in however many seconds. I wasn't timing. Oh, yeah. So I can't make a fun pun, but it's fun. <laughs> um, and then I'm going to have to take four of those points back away Whoa. for the usage of short king <laughs> oh. in, in any context, particularly uh, Napoleon. Yes. Who's Heidi did Google and it was five, six, which you didn't realize. Yeah, it's not even that short. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the short king energy that anyone under 5'9 carries, you know? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's true. I do think that, like, maybe the most, because, like, the most annoying short kings are the ones who aren't even that short, but, like, make it a thing. (laughs) Or they're like, yeah, "Yeah, I mean, I know I'm, like, 5'10", and, like, that's embarrassing. I'm like, what are you talking about? No, no, I think the worst short kings are they're 5'9", or they're 5'8", but they say they're 5'10". May I close us out with a related fact bang? Yes. Is it about short kings? Kind of, it's, about, it's about Napoleon. It's about okay. Napoleon. Okay. So, you know how, Na- you might know this, but you know how Napoleon is often depicted with his, like one of his hands inside of his jacket? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the theory was, and I learned this during my A-level history class, was that he had um, had a hernia, and at that time no one knew how to deal, like to treat them. So he would just push it in. 
Ew, God. No. Yeah. Gross. And I thought he was just like kind of a little perv. But oh, that's so much worse. That's so gross. That's what my history teacher told me. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of What. Thank you guys for being on the episode. It was so lovely to hear your voices. Oh, thank you. Yes. Uh, Celia, where can people find you? Um, I'm at Celery Ties, T-I-S-E, on Instagram and at Mother of Dinos on Twitter. <gasps> oh, she loves her dinos. Yes. <laughs> Chelsea, where fun. can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Harfouche, wherever internets are sold. <laughs> And you can find me. In Paris. At- <laughs> you should have to Paris. <laughs> you can find me at Ellie Maney on Twitter and Ellie Main on Instagram. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, it's a ton of fun. Please follow us there and check out our website, those two girls.club, for information on merch and other super fun stuff. Chelsea's always coming up with really fun ideas. I think we maybe have to do like a Dino Wars back to Bone Town shirt. I think we might have to back together. That is so good. Back to yeah. Bone Town is sending me. Please share this podcast with your friends. We'd love to grow our listenership. And it would mean the world to us if you left us a review on iTunes. And until next time, maybe go learn something. Wow, 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 wow.